This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. We're going to continue the lesson we began last week. I'm not sure whether I'll get it completed today or not. There's a lot of good information in the lesson today, and we introduced some new terms to you as we did last week. <clears throat> and I want to make sure you understand these terms today because I really think probably these terms that we're going to look at today are maybe even, well, they're just as important as the ones we looked at last Sunday. And so I don't know, we may get through the lesson or we may not. But uh, on your handout, <clears throat> and I put this in the email I sent out to you, maybe some of you have already taken care of this, but on your handout on page two, there's a misspelled word. Actually, it's not a misspelled word, it's just the wrong word used. And it's, the, it's, um, it's in the paragraph that just precedes Roman numeral, point, uh, Roman numeral two, it's the word borders. And uh, the first time, it appears two, twi two times in that paragraph. The first time, uh, it's the word border, but it's the wrong word. <laughs> Take the A out of it. It should be border as the parameter, you know, instead of the border, the guy that sticks around for a while. So just change that. And, and uh, as, I, as I expressed in the email, <clears throat> Uh, I do typos. Um, I do those pretty liberally on occasion. And uh, misspelled words and so forth. My wife normally catches them. And uh, she's, in fact, she's the one that caught that. But if you see some misspelled words or some typos in the notes, please let me know. Uh, I, I'm, uh, uh, you know, I, <clears throat> I'm not going to get uh, upset if you come to me and say, Preacher, <clears throat> you misspelled a word. Because uh, I do it all the time. And uh, spelling was not one of my greatest uh, uh, subjects in school. So if you do that, come to me. But probably best not to do it during class time. It's a little more embarrassing that way, you see. <laughs> uh, no, let's not take the class time to do that. Uh, I want to say happy birthday to Rosetta Lowry. Is she in the class today? Maybe. There she, sure she is. Uh, she's going to be 14. <laughs> oh, no, that's the date of her birthday. <laughs> and um, uh, happy birthday, Rosetta. I'm not going to ask you how old you are. We know you're very young. At least you look very young. Any other birthdays coming up this week? That's the only one I have on my list. And I don't have any anniversaries. Anybody having an anniversary this week? All right, well, let's get to the lesson. Good deal. We're, uh, <clears throat> uh, Tony, would you put that first slide up, uh, the first three points? Uh, there we go. This is, the, this is what we looked at last week, and um, we're going to pick, pick it up on uh, Roman numeral number four here in just a, just a short time and um, proceed through this uh, lesson today. So, <clears throat> let me just share this verse of scripture that we ended the lesson on last Sunday, and that's Matthew 24 and verse 14. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached into all the world for a witness unto all nations, 
and then shall the end come. And so <clears throat> we know that there's more of the world to reach. The end hasn't come yet. Jesus hasn't returned. And that's, uh, that's what it's referring to here. Then uh, shall the end come. Uh, the end of the opportunity to give out the gospel, I think, is what our Lord's referring to here. But um, it's a, it is our responsibility as a church, as an individual, and Dr. Valier uh, hit on this point very, uh, very clearly this morning, that it's our duty to give out the gospel, to tell people about Jesus Christ. It's the duty of our church corporately, but it's the duty of each of us individually as well to give out the gospel. And that's what our missions conference is all about. Not only preparing our hearts to do that, but uh, preparing our, our church, our congregation, and fulfilling the Great Commission. We, we looked at the verses last week in Matthew, uh, uh, Matthew 29 regarding the Great Commission that God has given to the church. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And so let's move on to Roman numeral number four. Reached versus unreached. When we talk about nations that have been reached or people groups that have been reached or those who have not been reached, it's a very interesting thing. Operation World, on their website, they, that's a great resource for missionaries and also just for individuals. But their website has detailed information about the extent to which the gospel has been, has been reached, has reached individual countries and people groups, uh, that is, within those countries, and it provides specific ways that we can pray for those nations. So an operation world lists the following as unreached people groups. And um, the Lampionese people of Indonesia, uh, the, the, the Huai, and, uh, and uh, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing these correctly, uh, if, uh, if you have a correct pronunciation for these, let me know. But Huai, H-U-I, and, uh, and the Hakka, H-A-K-K-A, uh, -A -A, Chinese people. These are, these are Islamic Chinese groups. Uh, there, are ten, uh, there are ten and a half million people in the Huai um, people group. And 47.8 million people in that, in that um, uh, Hakka uh, people group. That's a lot of people that, have, that are considered not to be reached people, a people group that has not been reached with the gospel. And I'm going to define what it means to, when, when we talk about a group or a people that have been reached and a people who have not yet been reached or unreached. I'm going to define that here in just a few minutes. And then uh, they list also the West Iranian people, which would be the Kurds and the Ludes. Uh, they, they're considered a people that have not been reached. They're unreached people with the gospel of Christ. And then the um, Azari Turk, 17 million of them. That's another Islamic group. And then the Bhutanese people. Uh, Bhutan is, uh, is, is in the eastern Himalaya, Himalayas, which is bordered by China and India. Vast number of people that are considered uh, by... Uh, Operation World, and they would know because they do research on this. 
uh, people groups that have not yet been reached with the gospel of Christ. Think of that. And uh, now these people groups, uh, these particular people um, <clears throat> are, are in what we call the 1040 window. That's another term that maybe you may not be familiar with. You've heard it. I, a pastor has referred to it from the pulpit. But let me tell you what the 1040, what the 1040 group or 1040 window is. The 1040 stands for, uh, for, stands for degrees. In other words, um, it, uh, it, it's defined as Asia or the area of Af Africa and Asia that extends 10 degrees. 10 degrees north of the equator to 40 degrees north of the equator. And um, that's mostly North Africa and the Middle East and Asia. This is called the 1040 window. And, and basically that area of the world is unreached with the gospel of Christ. It's primarily um, Muslim, Islamic, and it's unreached. And so that's an unreached area of the world that we consider as being an unreached world, uh, area of the world. Now, what do we mean by unreached people group? When the scripture speaks of a group or a region as being reached, it doesn't necessarily mean every person in that group has, has heard or embraced the gospel of Christ. Uh, here's, here's, what, here's, here's Paul, St. Paul's perspective on uh, reaching particular regions. And uh, put these verses up on the screen, if you will, Tony. Uh, Romans chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. And let me read these for you. It says this. If you want to read it in your Bible, if you can't, if you can't quite read it on the screen, that's fine. It's a smaller print. But here's what, uh, here's what Paul said. He's writing to the church at Rome, and he says... For I will not dare to speak of any of these things which Christ hath not wrought by me, to make the Gentiles obedient by the word and deed, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum, and here's, get this statement, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. What do you mean by that? Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. And then he continues, Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom it was not spoken of, they shall see. And, uh, and they that have not heard shall understand. Now, unreached is not the same as unsaved. Unreached, uh, unreached in unreached people groups is described as, as the group, as, 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 excuse, in describing the group, uh, as uh, not the individual members of it. And so an unreached people group is not the same thing as a group of unsaved people, despite the similarity in terms. Now, here's what we mean by that. What did Paul mean when he said he had fully proclaimed the gospel? Did he mean that every single person where, where he had preached heard the gospel in that region and responded to it? No, that's not exactly, exactly what he meant. 
it seems that once the gospel had taken root in a particular area where Paul had been, that Paul viewed that as the completion of his work there. Paul considered the area reached when there was a church of believers that had been rooted there and established in that particular area. And then, once that happened, he moved on. But Paul's ministry was not just evangelizing, getting people saved, and getting them gathered together in a church and then leave them. His call was to go to a place where there was no church established, where the gospel had not been preached before. He would go there, preach, win people to Christ, get a church established, and then move on. But he would leave somebody behind to build that church, to further establish that church, to, to mentor the people, to, uh, to teach them, to train them, to raise them up. And so that was Paul's activity. Once, once that happened, uh, he was ready to move on to another place. Now we have an example of this in the, in the book of Romans, the next few verses, in verses 23 and 24. Uh, Paul said this. Um, <clears throat> he, he wanted to go to Rome. Uh, he had a desire most of his life, we understand from reading this, he had a real desire to go to Rome. He hadn't been to Rome yet. He wrote this epistle to the, to, to the Roman church. There had been a church established there. Uh, somebody else had established it. We're not sure. The Roman Catholics say Peter established that church. But you know, truthfully, there's no evidence in Scripture or history that Peter was ever in Rome. There's no evidence of that. And... Uh, and uh, certainly, he was not the first pope. I, I'm sorry, I just had to say that because it's true. But anyway, here's what Paul wrote. He, he, Paul was in Corinth when he wrote this letter to the Roman church. And he said this, uh, But now having no more place in these parts, that's an interesting phrase. Um, I've got it underlined. And having no more place in these parts, and having a great desire uh, these many years to come, come unto you, to come unto you Romans, um, whenever so I take my journey into Spain. All right, Paul's in, Paul's in Corinth. Now he wants to leave Corinth. He had, been, he had been in Corinth, by the way, for 18 months, a year and a half. He had gotten the church at Corinth established. He won a lot of people to Christ. He got the church in Corinth established, and once that church was established, his desire now was to move on to another location, which was Spain. He wanted to go to Spain. But what he's saying here in this verse, it says, uh, whenever I take my journey unto Spain, I will come to you there in Rome. In other words, I'm headed for Spain, but I'm going to stop off in Rome on the way and minister to you there. And this is kind of interesting too. I will come to you, for I trust to see you in my journey, and to be brought on my way thitherward, to be brought on my way, I mean, the Holy Spirit put that word there, so it's there. <laughs> thitherward, 
by you if I may be somewhat filled with your company. What he's telling him is I'm going to come to Rome. And I hope, you've, I hope you Christians at Rome will help me get to Spain, is what he's saying. Uh, give me a little money. Typical missionary. Right? No? <laughs> yeah, he was typical missionary. I'm going to Spain, but I need some money to get there, and I'm going to stop off in Rome and hope you'll take a love offering for me. That's what he's saying. Uh, put it in our lingo, as we understand it. Uh, Paul depended on God's people to get from place to place. He, he didn't have a job. I know while he was in Corinth, he made tents. He met uh, Priscilla and Aquila there, and uh, they were tent makers. And, and so he joined up with them, and they, he made tents while he was there in Corinth and ministered to the people at Corinth. And uh, maybe he had collected a little extra. You know, he may have had a little bit in his wallet. But he said, I'm on the way to Spain to preach the gospel there, and I need some help. But he said, while I'm in Rome, I want to minister to you as well. I want to share with you the word of God and minister to you and, and help you believers there in Rome and, and win some souls to Jesus Christ. That was Paul's mode of operation. But you know, <clears throat> uh, and we have missionaries that do that today. But we, have to, but we ought to follow Paul's pattern. If, if a missionary does that, we need to follow Paul's pattern because you know what Paul did? He didn't just go away and leave the people behind. He left somebody else there, another missionary there to help these people to grow in Christ and help those churches along. Let me go ahead and read some more of my notes here. We also, we also see models in Scripture of other missionaries being sent out with a gospel message for much different tasks. See, all missions is not just going somewhere and evangelizing. And I hope I can help you with that here in just a minute. Because Timothy and Titus were sent to work, were sent, uh, were sent to work very purposely doing the work of an evangelist, even in areas that Paul had considered already being reached. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5, we see there that Paul left Timothy at Ephesus, exhorting him to continue on the work there. When Paul left Ephesus, he was at Ephesus. There was a group of people that got saved, brought them together, established a church, and he said, Timothy, I want you to take this church and, and pastor it and grow this church and help these people to get established in the Lord. So he didn't just pull up stakes and leave the people behind. He left somebody there that could minister to them, that could help them, to help them to grow in Christ. And Timothy was his choice for Ephesus. But, so Paul, and Paul left Titus in Crete, remember that? To take care of unfinished business there and to appoint elders uh, to serve as pastors in the churches there that had been planted. That's found in Titus chapter 1 and in, uh, and in verse 5. And so Titus, he left in, at Crete. Timothy remained at Ephesus. And um, not only was Timothy left there to pastor the church, but also to weed out some false doctrines that had started to creep into the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, we see that. So here's the bottom line. Whether we're working as pioneer, in pioneer missions or coming behind someone else to train and establish the church, 
as Timothy and Titus did, it's all missionary work in our, in our era. And so I, I, there's, some, there's some churches, I, I've run across some pastors in, in my ministry that, um, that they will only support missionaries that are planning churches. And I think that's wise. I think it's a good idea. But the truth is they, they weed out all the other missionaries. There are missionaries that are doing good work by establishing Bible schools in some of these countries, training the nationals to work among their people. Some churches won't support people like that. I don't understand that because that's a necessary ministry. Jen and I had lunch with, uh, with the Browns, Kevin and Michelle Brown, this week, Friday, I think it was. And we were talking about Matt and Nikki's ministry in Cambodia. And, uh, and uh, Kevin shared with us that, that his burden for Cambodia is that it's not necessarily to be able to rack up numbers so he can report it in a, in a letter that he sends back to his supporting church and say, oh, we won this many people to crisis this month. You know, that's what we look at when we, when back home here, we look at a missionary's letter to see how many people they'd won to Christ during the week, during the month. And they ought to be trying to win people to Christ. But <clears throat> go to Cambodia and try to win somebody to Christ every month. Oh, you might be able to get some people that made a profession, but I wonder if they really got saved. You see, that's the thing. And Kevin was telling me that, that, that uh, Matt's real burden is to win one or two. And he has won one while he's there. But you know what? He's dealing with Muslims. He's dealing with people that they don't understand. You know, they, they, they got their God. His name is Allah. I don't know, was it you that prayed today? Or somebody, somebody prayed that today that, uh, that uh, they would be awakened that, to know that Allah's not the true God. But to train somebody, a national, if you win one national to Christ and get him grounded in Christ, he can be more effective at reaching his own people than an American missionary can. See? And uh, last Sunday I mentioned Archie Martin. Archie, Archie spent a lifetime in Scotland. He didn't win, win very many to Christ. Uh, Scotland's a gospel-hardened place. And I told you that my wife and I have been there, and we saw it firsthand. And uh, he won some. He worked mostly with children, actually. And, but anyway, uh, some of these areas of the world, especially in this 1040 window, where if you win one person to Jesus Christ in a, in a long time, um, it's well worth it if you can get that person trained, get him established, teach him the Word of God, teach him how to study the Word of God on his own, teach him how to pastor don't just turn it over to him and say, I want you to pastor this, I'm gone. But teach him how to pastor. He can be more effective 
in reaching his own people than an American missionary can be, who studied the language and learned the language, but culture's a little different, and uh, maybe his skin looks a little different, but, uh, but if he can win one or two nationals to Jesus Christ and get them established in the work, uh, he's done a lifetime of work. Some of the early missionaries in, in uh, uh, Hudson Taylor, for example, and some of the others, they were on the field years and years and years before they had their first converts. converts. And uh, so, anyway. So, reached and unreached. Uh, because an area has, been, has had the gospel preached to it does not necessarily mean it is reached. It may be reached with the gospel, but it does, what I should have said is it doesn't necessarily mean that there are a lot of people there that are saved. It's just, the gospel's just been preached there. And you know from your own personal experience, some of you, that gospel was preached to you several times before, you, before the light turned on, right? Now, some of you heard the gospel several times, and then finally the Holy Spirit was able to get the light turned on in your mind and your heart. And then you reached out to Christ and repented of your sin and received him as your Savior. Well, let's move on to the next point, Roman numeral 5. The introduction, and these are two terms, contextualization and indigenous principle. How many of you heard those terms before? One, two, three, four, five. But most of us in this class, most of you in this class have not heard those terms before. But these are important terms when it comes to the area of missions work. Contextualization, that's a long word. It's hard to pronounce for me. It's hard to pronounce. Um, mayonnaise is hard for me to pronounce sometimes. <clears throat> Contextualization. Indigenous principle. What does that mean? Well, let's look at the next slide. Indigenous. Uh, here's a definition. This is Webster's definition of indigenous. Produced, growing, living, or occupying natively or naturally in a particular region or environment. When we talk about planning indigenous churches, we're talking about planting churches that, that represent or look like the area in which they're planted. I've got, some th I've got some things to say about that in a few moments. So when we talk about the indigenous principle, we're talking about, we're talking about church planting, doing the work of missions in a given area where the work looks like that area. Uh, that's the best way I can explain it for now. Contextualization or contextualize means to place, and in a parenthesis there, something such as a word or an activity in context. This means something to a missionary. This may be new terminology, terminology to some of you, but I think you need to know this because this is what missionaries are faced with. When an American missionary goes to a foreign field, a different culture, uh, maybe a different color of skin, uh, 
different backgrounds, different environment. Their job there is not to plant an American church in that environment, but to plant a church that looks like the context. One of the big mistakes that a, that a lot of American missionaries make when they go to a foreign field is they try to plant an American church in the middle of Africa. It ain't going to work. I've used a couple of examples in my notes here. I don't know if I put these examples, if these examples are in your notes. I, I don't think they are, but, but um, it would be ludicrous for a person like Marvin Tobin when he went to Mexico to get down there and uh, get in this planet church in Mexico and those people down there, you know, you know how they accompany their music? Somebody tell me. How do they accompany their music? What do they use? Yeah, guitar. You know, guitar. <laughs> It would be stupid for Marvin to go down and plant a church and say, I don't think guitars have any place in the worship of a church, so we're going to get us an organ, a pipe organ. <laughs> now, boy, that would be my delight. I'd go down there and help him put up that pipe organ. But you know where the Mexicans would go? They'd go to the, they'd go to the Pentecostal church that's using the guitar, you know. That's what we're talking about, contextualization. Planning a church in the context of the culture that you're going to. And planning a church that looks like that culture. That's contextualization. And, uh, and some missionaries learn the hard way uh, that that's not the way to plant a church in, you know, in foreign soil. To, a people group that's not the same as their people group, in other words. And um, so let me see here. Let me, let me read some, some of these notes. Indigenous people are distinct social and cultural groups that share collective ancestral ties to the land and natural resources where they live. The principle of contextualization is somewhat similar to the, con to the concept of indigenous principle, but there is a difference. And let me try to help you with the difference here. It's, um, I talked to John O'Malley about this a couple of weeks ago when I knew I was going to be teaching this lesson and, and using these terms. I called up John O'Malley and said, John, help me, out, help me out here. And he was a tremendous help to me to understand uh, what's going on here, what these terms actually mean. Uh, contextualization has more to do with how the gospel is preached in the context of a particular culture, where on the other hand, the indigenous principle uh, relates more to the practice of worship in a foreign culture that may be different from that of the missionary's culture. Um, I really did put that in a slide, didn't I? There it is on the screen. All right. I couldn't remember whether I had that in a slide or not. Um, in the missionary context, 
It refers to the process of planting a church among a peculiar, a peculiar, particular people group that is faithful to its culture and environment. In other words, you're going to a people, you're going to, you're going to preach the gospel to a group of people that they have a different culture than what you have. And they're loyal to their culture. They're faithful to their culture. And if you go into their area, if you go into that people group and try to, and try to change their culture or import your culture into that group, you're going to fall flat on your face. And that's the reason why a lot of missionaries quit after their first term. It's because they didn't know how to contextualize. They didn't know, they, they, somehow they missed the training, I guess, of how to go into a different culture and somehow put their culture behind them and adopt to the culture that's there. Now, there's some cautions that have to be made, of course. For example, if there's a moral matter in their culture that's contrary to biblical principles, if there are doctrinal matters that are contrary to the scripture, then the missionary has an obligation to teach the people why they need to abandon that part of their culture. But, but some, sometimes missionaries unnecessarily try to get some people to abandon parts of their culture that are not unscriptural, they're just different. Give me a verse of scripture that tells you that playing a guitar in a church is, is wrong. Now I want to tell you, there was a time in my ministry when I would not allow guitars to be played in my church. Yeah. Guitars don't have any place in the worship service. That was my position. Then I was pretty adamant about it. Now, I did some other stupid things during my early ministry, but, I mean, it's not my preference, and I used to play a guitar, believe it or not. I used to pick a guitar. My, my goal in life as a teenager, this was before I was saved, you understand. My goal in life was to learn how to play a guitar and go to Nashville and, and be a country music singer. <laughs> yeah, me! <laughs> I know some of you are sitting back there and say, what's wrong with that? <laughs> nothing. <laughs> it's stupid, but there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> it's not stupid either. I, <clears throat> anyway, I kind of like country music. I don't thrive on it. But I like a good pipe organ, too. You know that. I've told you that many a time. Unfortunately, this church is kind of small for pipe organ. <laughs> Let's see here, where, where was I in my notes? Tony, I know I've got you all fouled up there putting these, uh, these uh, slides up, but anyway. Uh, I probably have already said all I need to say about this contextualization. Let's see what else we've got here. There is an extreme... Um, on the other end, uh, the, cautions, the cautions are real. 
missionary has to be very cautious uh, when he goes into a different culture that, that he doesn't try to import or impose upon the people part of his culture that's not their culture. That's a hard thing to do. When you've, when you've been in a Western culture and, and uh, so far you're used to wearing a suit to church and all that sort of thing, you know, um, it, would be, it would be wrong to go into a culture uh, that, uh, you know, their, their way of attending church, they sit on the floor. You know, sit on the floor. You say, well, we need pews. Well, they're more comfortable on the floor. You may be more comfortable sitting on a pew, but their culture is to sit on the floor. It would be ludicrous to impose that on a culture like that, you see. And so contextualization is important. Um, but there is an extreme to this. On the extreme end of that spectrum uh, is a church planted probably in a Muslim, uh, in Muslim uh, culture, and, and they still want to go to the mosque on Friday and they desire, they, they, their desire is to practice all the traditions and the fest, uh, festivals uh, common to Islam and so forth. Jan and I ran into that. We went to Haiti a number of years ago and we had some very good friends. In fact, they were uh, uh, missionaries that our church supported, Don and Jackie Mills. Um, we went down and, and spent some time with them in Haiti. Haiti is the poorest country, it was at that time, it still is, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And you know the upheaval that's been going on down there recently. But we had the privilege of being there, and, um, and there were things, and in in the missionaries, Don and Jackie, warned us of some things that we, would, that we might be cautious of. Uh, for example, the women down there went around topless all the time. It's part of their culture. And uh, Don and Jackie won them to Christ. They tried to teach them that you need to cover up. And uh, it got to where many of the ladies respected that. Now you say, wasn't well, that imposing his culture on their culture? Well, there's some things that, uh, that the missionary has to Remind them, uh, same thing with if you go to Australia and the Aborigines down there, they, they run around with no clothes at all on. I heard an Aborigine one time preaching when I was pastoring in Indianapolis. He came to Indianapolis, but he was an Aborigine that had gotten saved. And his testimony was this. He said, before I got saved, I ran around with no clothes on. But he said there was something, when I, when I trusted Christ as my Savior, there was something inside of me. And of course, he, he knew that that was the Holy Spirit that taught him he needed to cover up. And so he says, I started wearing clothes. It was just kind of automatic for me to do that. Well, Don and Jackie, were, they were teaching the ladies down there that, that that's not appropriate, you know, for a Christian to do that. But they warned us and said, even though there's some ladies that are in our church, when they come to church, they're properly dressed. But if we happen to run into them out on the street somewhere, you may have to turn your back. And so we were prepared for that. And then there were other some things, other things. See, voodooism is the big deal down in Haiti. 
the church, not the Bible churches, but the Roman Catholic Church and Voodooism is one and the same thing in Haiti. In fact, we went into a Roman Catholic church in in Port-au-Prince in Haiti. It was a Roman Catholic church. uh, But on the walls were all these murals of Voodooism, witchcraft, one and the same. And every year they have a festival down there, I forget what it was called, uh, where they would go out and do their, uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, put this on. But it was a, a big witchcraft thing. And, uh, and that was part of their culture. And, and witchcraft was a part of the culture in Haiti. I don't know if you know this, but when, <clears throat> when Haiti uh, gained its independence from France, they dedicated that part of the island, Hispaniola is the name of the island, um, the uh, Dominican Republic, and the Re- Dominican Republic shares the island with Haiti. You cross the border from Haiti over into the Dominican uh, Republic, and it's like going from night into day. It's just different. But uh, Haiti, when, it's, when it broke off and became independent from France, they dedicated that part of the island to Satan and, uh, and offered a pig in sacrifice to Satan. And Satan took over down there. In fact, in front of the city building in Port-au-Prince, there was a, a monument, uh, an, an, uh, it was a monument of a pig in remembrance and of, of, uh, of that ceremony of them sacrificing a pig to Satan. Anyway, so cultures are different. And missionaries have to be, they have to contextualize their ministries. And, and, uh, And so to go into Haiti and start a ministry there, um, true contextualization, I suppose, would be for the ladies in the church to go topless. No, no, no. Uh, that's not godly. That's not God. That's not scriptural. And so the missionaries sometimes have to teach new converts how to abandon certain parts of their culture and, and to separate from Voodooism. It's just a way of life. All right. Uh, the mistakes of American missionaries, I've already said this. The mistakes American missionaries make in foreign lands is try to plant an American church in a foreign culture. And uh, that's different than the American culture. Uh, this is a prescription for failure. And unfortunately, when, that, when, when, when it fails, the missionary thinks he's a failure. He gets discouraged, and before long, he's left the field. That's happened many, many times. Uh, missionaries just don't realize what they need to do. Well, there's the definition of an indigenous church. I think this is the next slide, Tony, if I'm not. Yeah, there it is. Definition of an indigenous church. What is it? Well, indigenous missions. um, It means to produce something that is native, not exotic. Um, The average missionary today believes that an indigenous mission is merely starting a church Uh, that gets a local leader 
and then walks away. And while this has, has the appearance of being indigenous, is it really? No, it's not. Just the fact that there is a local pastor that takes over uh, to pastor that church doesn't mean that that's necessarily an indigenous church. So what are the marks of an indigenous church, uh, of an indigenous works? Well, work, and this all comes from Dr. O'Malley. Dr. O'Malley gave me these notes, and so here's what, here's what he says are the marks of an indigenous work on the field. Number one, when the work is viewed by those who are local as being their own. They did it. The missionary may have come and helped, but they did it. It was their work. Number two, and, and you may have to think about this a little bit. When a missionary is seen as one who gathers and trains instead of gave and sustained. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, <clears throat> another mistake that many times American missionaries make on a foreign field is they write back to their churches at home and say, hey, we need X number of dollars to build a church down here. And so they raise the money in America to send to Africa someplace in Africa or Asia somewhere to build the church. Guess what? The people didn't do that. The locals didn't do that. And so the missionary gave, and he's still getting money out of America to sustain the work. Several years ago, this has been, in fact, many years ago, Maranatha Baptist Missions in Natchez, Mississippi, you've run into that work. They had a principle that no American money could be sent to an American missionary on a foreign field to build a church. That missionary had to have the people of that area raise their own money from their own culture to build the church. I wasn't used to that because I'd known a lot, of, a lot of missionaries that came to our church and said, you know, we, we need uh, X, X thousands of dollars to, to build this, this work this, this, and we'd give it to them. But when the missionary left, the money dried up for the people, locals, and probably the work dried up too, you see. And so Maranatha was on to something, I think, with that. Anyway, and then number three, when the people have been trusted, trained, and loved to a place of dependence on God instead of America. That's an indigenous church. Not only was there a local man now pastoring the church there, but it was the local's church. They did it. It was their work. It wasn't the American missionaries. The American missionary came and trained, won them to Christ, trained them, helped them, uh, uh, maybe did put in some money uh, in, into the work, but it was their work. They did it. They raised the money for it. They built the building. Now, is there anything wrong with a, uh, a missions team from a church going down to a field somewhere, going to a, 
a mission work someplace and helping them build a building or anything. No, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just a group of believers here going there to help another group of believers. But if they become dependent upon that missions team from that other church to keep that work sustained, then that work is not an indigenous work. It's a work that's still depending on America to get their work done. That's the whole point. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for our missionaries. And Lord, I, I pray that you will enlighten our hearts and our minds to some of the complications involved in service on a mission field of different cultures, of integrating our lives and the cultures of other lives, uh, our missionaries, Lord, who go. And I pray, Father, in this conference that we have coming up, that we will be able to assimilate some of this stuff and apply it, Lord, in such a way that, we, that the missionaries will know that we're with them. We understand some of the difficulties and some of the, uh, some of the obstacles that stand between them and a successful ministry on a foreign field. And so I pray, Lord, that you would just use this to your glory as we continue it next week. I pray it will be greatly profitable to us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.